From no milk on the supermarket shelves to producers facing the distressing task of pouring it down the drain. They're being asked by processors um, to, to dispose of the milk um, and it's not being collected from farm. Why? What can be done about it? How can the government help? In a moment, we'll hear from the chairman of the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers, Peter Alvis, and we'll hear from a Rutland farmer on how he's coping and adapting to the problems caused by COVID-19. I've always viewed farming, for me, to include what is regarded or described as the, as the diversification. Kit and Sean will be here, of course, with market news and agronomy advice. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you're keeping safe and well. I'm Steve Orchard, wishing you a happy Easter, albeit a rather unusual one. The headlines this week, well, pollution levels have fallen significantly since the beginning of March. Interesting that there's pretty much the same level of cattle in the fields, but far fewer cars and aeroplanes on the roads and in the skies. I'll just leave that one hanging there. If you're working on different sites and have to move about on public roads, you can download an Essential Journey certificate now from the NFU website. The Great British Beef Week will be going ahead, but in a scaled-down format due to COVID-19. Like so many others, they're adapting to the new normal by going online from the 23rd to the 30th of this month. They will still be raising money for the farming charity RABI. And are you homeschooling at the moment? Farmers and growers are hoping to inspire and educate children about food and where it comes from as part of the Lockdown Learning Project. Here's the NFU's James Peck. James, tell us a little bit about the project. Well, this is a a free learning resource that's aimed at basically taking the pressure off parents who who are obviously isolated and and stuck at home. And they've got children to keep uh, entertained and also educated as well. What kind of material will you be making available then? Well, this is all free uh, material on the eatfarmnow.com website and um, it's, it's done in conjunction with NFU Education as well. Um, and it's just, uh, it's all about hands-on practical learning and using food and farming to help parents teach science, technology, engineering and maths, which are obviously key topics in the national curriculum. Um, it's a combination of videos, activities and challenges and it makes that resource, um, you know, uh, it has something for everyone in, in, in terms of resources. It's all about sort of um, reconnecting children with the great outdoors, um, you know, uh, sort of looking at the food chain and how, how food gets from, from field to fork um, and using sort of, you know, quite um, sort of inspirational characters as well from the world of farming. Obviously, we've got Adam Henson from uh, BBC Country File um, and Jimmy Doherty is uh, also a TV presenter from Friday uh, Friday Feast. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a really exciting project and, it, and they've all done sort of selfie videos for us um, so people can watch at home and it's kind of bringing the great outdoors into people's living rooms and kitchens I suppose. That material can be accessed on social media hashtag lockdown learning all one word and online at eatfarmnow.com. Many thanks James Peck from the NFU. Peter Alvis the chairman of the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers joins us now. Morning Peter. We seem, from a consumer's point of view, to have gone from not having any milk in the supermarkets to now getting stories about throwing milk away. We are. I think the real problem here lies by the fact that the food service sector, um, which normally takes quite a volume of milk every day, uh, is no longer taking any because we're not going to the coffee shops and that sort of thing anymore. So so that's where the problem has come. Um, And the processing capacity for uh, liquid milk going into retail um, can't cope with the extra volume 
There just isn't the capacity there to process it or actually the demand um, from customers to buy that uh, extra in a liquid format. So what's happening to the milk at the moment? So unfortunately at the moment we're seeing some milk being um, thrown down the drain by the farmers. Um, They're being asked by processors um, to to dispose of the milk um, and it's not being collected from farm. Is it at all feasible to do something else with the milk or presumably that would require an awful lot of change in uh, production and infrastructure and so on? Uh, rather than just putting it in milk bottles? Uh, There is the possibility, I think, virtually all the processing capacity in the UK is currently full. Everyone that's making cheese is making as much cheese as they can, and the powder plants that are available are all running. So I believe at the moment that everybody is utilising as much as they possibly can. Um, so, So there is that challenge with the bit that's left. The other challenge we have is if we put too much as well into intervention, then we just see a long-term depressed price um, over a number of years while we try and remove product from intervention. It's not possible, presumably, to store or freeze the extra milk that's being produced? No. um, One of the big challenges, again, with um, putting product into storage currently is that because of the um, Brexit preparations and all of that sort of thing, there is limited cold storage and frozen storage available in the UK, which isn't already filled with um, uh, Brexit preparation products. You've put forward some plans to government. What are those plans? So we've put forward a plan to government to say that um, the farmers who are being uh, adversely affected by the, the reduced demand from the food service sector and from other sectors, really, um, that they should be compensated because this is outside of normal market conditions. We normally see um, milk prices drop slightly in the spring when the cows go out to grass and we have a flush. Um, But this is unprecedented in the fact that a whole sector of the market has has disappeared. So we're asking the government to compensate those farmers for the milk that they're having to dispose of um, and to compensate compensate them directly um, rather than going through the processes. How many farmers are affected by this, uh, Peter? Well, we believe um, that uh, at the moment it's looking like it's about 300 farmers that are, that are being directly affected, um, or the milk from 300 farmers. So it may be some more farmers, um, but they're not all being affected at the same time um, because some may be collected some days and some on other days. So it, it's a total of about the milk from 300 um, UK farms. And... Um, we're looking to see that those farms are supported so that as we come out of this um, issue and the, the demand picks up again, that we're able to continue to supply good British product um, to UK consumers. And that's the real thing here, is making sure that we don't lose the production base for when we come out the other side um, of the um, movement restrictions and the social distancing policies. Have you had any response from government so far? Uh, we have had, uh, we're having some communications with them um, and uh, we are still talking to them about the, the ideas that we're putting forward. So there, is, there has been some engagement, yes. Peter Alvis, RABDF chairman. Many thanks. Time for some important agronomy advice now. Sean Sparling's here with his weekly report. But such a waste, Sean, to see milk literally going down the drain, eh? 
Yes, good morning, Steve. I, do you know, it was almost obvious that this was what was coming, wasn't it? We could, we should have seen this coming. Um, if you went back 10, even 10 years ago, you could walk around the high street and you could buy all of your shopping that you needed, your newspapers, your shoes, your clothes, your electrical goods, your grocery, your green grocery, your bread, your cakes, your meat. You could buy it all on the high street. You walk up any high street now and it's pretty much populated by estate agents, cafes and charity shops. That's where we've got to because the power of retail in the hands of a very small number of massive organisations has driven those small independent retailers out of business and they now have the responsibility to fill the gap that those small independent retailers have left. And I think it's the same goes for the whole dairy processing industry, the milk processing industry, because we find ourselves with a very, very small number of massive milk processors who are holding the whole dairy industry to ransom, if you want to put it that way. And it's only when things like this happen with COVID-19 that we realise just how much we rely upon a very small number of massive organisations. For me, I think the time has come to think about it. We haven't even got to Brexit yet. We have to think very, very clearly about where we want to be in the future. And for me, it's massive numbers of independent retailers up the high street once again, so that we have the ability to choose to go to a different shop rather than queue like Alton Towers to get into the one big massive supermarket um, which is where all of the food is now concentrated. I'm all for getting these independent retailers back on the high street. Let's have a little bit of common sense and a little bit of a dilution of the retail industry once again. This should show us the way forward and hopefully we can make a few decisions that are worth something going forward. So moving on to agronomy then, fair bits happened this week. I'm finding an awful lot of grain aphid, rose grain aphid, uh, bird cherry oat aphid out in the field. I even found some foxglove aphid stuck on one of my sticky tracks the other day. I haven't seen any of those for a number of years. But it's knowing what you're dealing with out in the field. Bird cherry oat, rose grain, grain aphid, all of those carry barley yellow dwarf virus in their saliva. If that's what you're finding populating your field, then you may need to deal with them. Remember, the predators, as things warm up, the ladybirds, the hoverflies, the lacewings, the wasps, they will help control that problem. That is what uh, integrated pest management is all about. You let Mother Nature deal with the problem. When she starts to fail, that is when you step in. So monitor the situation out there in the field. I've certainly found threshold in some spring barleys over the last few days. The other thing which I found massive quantities of on Wednesday afternoon were pea and bean weevil. They were pinging off me. You could hardly breathe in for the things. And that has implications in a season like this where it's gone so dry and so warm. Um, I never thought we'd say dry. Um, I never thought I'd see dust again after February. But we're seeing very slow emergence of vining peas, combining peas, spring beans, very, very slow to come through the ground. And we know that if the pea and bean weevil direct feed on that early crop as it's struggling to get through the ground, they can cause significant direct feeding damage. But as as we've always said, pea and bean weevil, it's not all about the direct feeding damage. It's more to do with the fact they lay eggs and the larvae then tunnel down the stem and get into the root nodule. That's what you're trying to prevent. So if you're at threshold, you need to go out and you need to deal with them, but choose the right tool for the job and the one which is kindest to the beneficials. On my sticky traps, as I say, I'm not finding any predators, really. I'm finding all pests. So that's that sort of speaks volumes for me out there. There's nothing doing the job for me in the field. Sugar beet, 
emerging quite well at the moment but again just watch these temperatures when you've got a 25 degree day and a one degree night that 24 degree ambient means if you go putting a caustic herbicide on you can cause significant crop damage to a cotyledon crop so make sure that the products you're using are safe at the growth stage that you're dealing with Oilseed rape continues to annoy. There are still field parts of fields now that are giving up. So if you're looking at a backward crop of rape and you're thinking, I don't think it's going to be worth taking the combine into that field, then don't. Don't waste any more of your money on it. Speak to your advisor and make an executive decision. But remember, what you've already put on it will govern what you can put on, if anything, in terms of another crop. Now, one of the other things that happened this week was, as we know, we're going to lose epoxyconazole, opus type materials, and we can buy it until the end of October this year, and we have to use it up by the end of October next year. And there's been a new recommendation, a voluntary initiative been put out by the CRD, who are recommending that people don't apply products containing epoxyconazole at more than 83 grams of active substance per hectare before growth stage 40. Now this is a voluntary measure in addition to all of the existing statutory conditions. Um, so where we are with it, CRD have made clear it is voluntary as I say but wherever possible where the disease levels, the disease pressure, where variety allows they would urge you to consider that situation so if you're using tracker for example which has epoxyconazole in it you want no more than 1.23 liters per hectare 1.75 liters of something like enterprise or nebula 0.66 of a liter of straight 125 grams of epoxyconazole um, if you're using a dexar all of those things have epoxy in them so check how much is in them speak to your advisor and formulate a plan really if you've got chlorthalonil of course in the shed that'll help prop it up against septoria every field i'm walking in's got septoria and I found rust in every single field of Skyfall, Kerrin and Graham uh, and Gravity that I walked into on Wednesday morning. So T0 may be a very worthwhile treatment this year. So that's it from me. Um, have a very happy Easter. Please all of you stay safe and we'll see what the next seven days bring. Stay safe and a happy Easter, Sean. Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services back at the same time next week on the Farming Programme, which continues in a moment to hear from Rutland farmer Jan McCourt on how he's coping and adapting at the moment. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Every farmer's facing challenges just now. We've had floods and Brexit, the economy, getting the blame for pollution and now coronavirus. Hopefully you're not affected physically by COVID-19, but it's more than likely that at some level your business is. I spoke to Rutland farmer Jan McCourt at Northfield Farm. We had a very interesting chat about the challenges he faces and what he's doing to adapt and ensure a secure, profitable future. Firstly, what's the principal business of Northfield Farm, Jan? Producing the best meat we can, finding the best add-ons to that meat, and then with with uh, a big part of it has been uh, the catering side of it, so it's sort of street food stroke event business. Um, that's where the real margin is, um, and that's the business, the side of the business that has collapsed because obviously um, that, that, that everyone in that trade has been shut down quite correctly. Um, so it's a big, um, the new buzzword is pivot for businesses that can survive to surviving on just a fresh produce offer. And um, that puts a huge strain on very antiquated systems and processes. In a, essentially, you know, we're, we're, we're a bespoke business. We cut everything to order. We, we are having to learn a lot of lessons on how to improve those ordering systems 
in on the phone? How do we um, manage deliveries? You know, it's a huge, very, very steep learning curve at the same time as running a farm and lambing. And so, you know, one of my boys, he, he started at three o'clock yesterday morning, um, out lambing, uh, shower, delivery down to London, back, um, carry on with all the farming, and then off at, I don't know, five or six o'clock doing a local delivery round, back in the lambing shed at the end of it, finished at about, got into bed about 11.30. And, of course, you've got a stall on Borough Market, haven't you? Yeah, we've been at Borough for for 21 years. This is our 20, well, we're into our 22nd year now. Um, and that is, if you like, the uh, commercially, it's always been the engine room for, for building the farming business and supporting everything else that goes on. Um, and that business has always been split between cooking our produce down there, so our burgers, our bacon, our sausages, et cetera, et cetera, um, as, as a food-to-go offer, and then a big um, raw meat display and counter and butchery service. And uh, now it's only the latter that survives. It's very tough. It's been very tough managing people's fear and emotion. It's been tough adjusting to um, uh, social distancing and... Uh, you know, the market has fought very hard to stay open, which it which it has done. But some businesses, um, we're, we're lucky, I suppose, because we are essentially providing a staple. Um, you know, despite all the the stuff that's gone on in the last couple of years of, you know, with vegan attacks and and a lot of blame on you know, blaming cattle for most of the the ills of the world. Um, suddenly uh, that's gone very quiet, mercifully, and, and people want to eat, and they want to eat decent, traceable, high-quality meat, um, among other things. Um, and so that's what we've remained in business doing. Now, unlike a lot, Jan, you've already diversified to a certain extent. Many farmers will be at the stage now of thinking, where next? What shall we do? Is retail on top of production a viable option? I've always viewed farming, for me, to include what is regarded or described as the, as the diversification. So I've, I've never seen um, why one would produce food and not try and sell it um, at uh, as short a distance to the consumer as possible. I wrote something some years ago, and I called it the rule of least remove. I tried to say to customers, what you need to do if you really want to take responsibility for what you're eating is source what you what you put in your body as close to its origin uh, geographically as possible. And um, that's what, by and large, what our customers, many of whom have been buying for us for 20-plus years, um, that's what they they kind of live and breathe. Um, And I think we were one of the first to, to start this very simple approach. And I think as more have, have come on board, um, that has become, it, it's been edging towards normality because, of course, it was the normality many, many years ago. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking the, the supermarkets. I've never been a great fan of them. But, I mean, there is no question that they, they most of them have risen to the occasion extraordinarily well. Um, in in this this crazy time, um, but the the need for farmers themselves to realise to, to, to somehow try to take more more control over their produce, but the need for the 
for them, the market and for the consumer to help them do that, I think is is very, very strong. Now, if, you, if you're farming 2,000 acres of, of arable, which I'm not, um, to, to take that produce directly to the consumer yourself requires you know, something totally extraordinary. So it, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy solution, and it's not something that it's easy just to, to, to spin on a, on a, on a sixpence and, and make happen. Jan, any tips for the farmer who's just weighing up their options at the moment? Well, I think there are two stages. There's the um, there's the here and now, and I think it's if you have nothing in place, it's almost impossible. Um, although, you know, I, I hear uh, a lot of tales of of with with the drop in milk price to within certain consortiums, um, milk being chucked away or continuing to be be produced at a loss, and I, I do wonder whether there's any way to focus on, I don't know, something like butter production or something relatively simple, because all of these things take huge infrastructure. I mean, it's, it's all very well to say it's slightly easier with meat, but with meat, you've got to, you've got to source butchers, you've got to source, source processing uh, capacity. You've got, you know, it, it, it's not easy. It's incredibly difficult. Um, and then I think there's the, there's the longer term. So it's somehow creating a, a plan for when whatever the new normality returns uh, does actually return. I think it, uh, for most people, the only hope really is to think strategically. And we're trying to do that. We're trying to mould our existing setup to keep the business afloat and, and beyond. But we're also at the same time saying, right, what, what can we do to... Uh, stabilize this business for the longer term future. We're speaking to our bank um, to uh, to extend more borrowing so that we can support the business. But also within that that application, look at what we can do, how we can invest in things right now, which will um, see the business far stronger in the in say six or nine or eighteen months time or whenever you know normality kind of kind of returns. I think that strategic thinking, that combination of survival now, but thinking ahead is absolutely essential. I, I honestly do think this, this whole situation pre, uh, presents a huge possible opportunity to um, reboot British farming and, it's, and it's the perception of importance and the understanding of its importance. I mean, we've got to remember it's only weeks ago that leaked reports from semi-lunatic government advisors were, were coming out saying, you know, British farming should be, should be ignored or should be, well, the effect should be ignored or, uh, or just let, you know, wither because domestic food production was unimportant. Now, I can't remember who that guy was and clearly he, he needed help as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, this was, this was semi-official government thinking or consideration and farming in this country has has been bashed against on so many fronts for such a long time. And we're finding that we're finding the most extraordinary expressions of gratitude and appreciation from people all over the country because we, we do nationwide mail order by courier just saying, you know, thanking us for, for, for existing and for the efforts that, that we make. And we're clearly not alone. We've got lots of, you know, friends and competitors. Um, who I'm sure are experiencing the same thing. 
Um, we've got people in one part of the country that are in isolation that are really worried about elderly relatives, perhaps far closer to, to, to home for us, that we can help, hopefully, on the on our local delivery runs and stuff like that. There's a very strong human element about it, which has always been there in our business, but is, um, is exaggerated or multiplied uh, considerably now. And that yeah, can we- only be a good thing. We've had an enormous number of calls to the radio stations saying thank you uh, to, to farmers, to supermarkets, to truck drivers, and the whole infrastructure. Uh, and it's, it's been quite an eye-opener. And the, the positivity in adversity has been quite heartwarming in lots of cases. And I guess from a farming point of view, it's almost forced us to take stock and take and do a review and are we doing the right thing can we do anything better it's almost forced us into that position of having to review where we go next isn't it yeah no i think that's right i think you know where i would fault the supermarkets and many of us have over many years is they've they've been part of a drive to the bottom in terms of the price versus versus value versus quality argument and i think you know i know there are lots of statistics about the percentage of, of spend on food in average households. I think overall, you know, we will hopefully um, realize that we must stop buying rubbish, not just in food, but in non-food. We must prioritize uh, food and art and culture and community um, very differently from how we have. Um, there was this rather wonderful um, report from David Hopney on, on um, your close competitor, Radio 4, yesterday. <laughs> um, you know, it, I think people's priorities, will, will, they have to change, and we all need to sort of club together somehow to be part of that, um, because it, it, it's exposed so many faults in the way we live and the way society is built and the inequalities of uh, within within society it's a bit like climate change it actually doesn't matter whether you believe in climate change or don't believe in climate change what you need to do is actually look at what we're doing and believe and understand what's right and what's wrong it, it can't be right to pollute the world and you know beauty beauty spots all over the world with with rubbish um yeah. with plastic bottles with a plastic bags and it's just it's just morally it's just wrong on every level whether that's con- contributing to climate change or not is it is irrelevant in in the grand scheme of things let's just try and start doing what's right very interesting stuff that's jan mccourt of northfield farm thank you so much jan a long chat but some very useful pointers you can find more about them at northfieldfarm.com to the markets now, Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Morning. Well, good morning, Steve. A different week this week on the wheat market. There are not many recent days when futures have been largely unchanged. But Tuesday and Wednesday were two of those. 15p and 60p gains were all that London did. And the US markets were pretty mixed with wheat lower, but May's higher. The first time in eight trading sessions. The euro, the pound, is steady at 88.3p. And the stock markets are grinding their way very slowly higher. French rape in recent times has seen better finishes by two euros higher. Short-term global demand does continue. Several large international countries are trying to buy. Japan is the latest example. who are trying to buy 820,000 tonnes of feed wheat. 
and Saudi are trying to buy a shipment for a four-month spread. UK and Russia are restricting exports and the world needs feeding, which should mean that the EU can keep filling some gaps. In the same breath, we do need to be aware ourselves of how much we need to stockpile, as the whole of the west of Europe seems unlikely to get a bumper crop this harvest. So in all honesty, if we roll one million metric tonnes ourselves, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea. The UK feed, feed grain demand is showing signs of slowing in the Yorkshire market. Often one of the largest trading premiums of East Anglia is now offered lower. Rumours of Ensis are taking grain potentially lower and the production of ethanol values is also moving lower. Only a month ago we were talking about E10 ruling could give the industry a boost, how quickly things can change. Physical movement in East Anglia is going much better with staffing issues being resolved and one mill running at full capacity. Good demand for milling wheat and lower grades, although the best values have moved to June and July rather than April and May. More locally, the majority of growers are now drilled up across the board with increasing need of rain. It seems strange to think that three weeks ago, soils were still wet and the thought of rain would have been the last thing anybody wanted. Most winter crops are shallow rooting this year due to the wet autumn period we had and freshly drilled crops need moisture to get things going. Let's hope the rain comes soon, but looking at the long-term forecast, there is absolutely no quantity on the horizon. Moving on to orseed rape, most poor crops of orseed rape have now been removed and what is left should be taken to harvest. It will be interesting when the AHDB bring out their planting survey to see how the area of orseed rape has differed to the original amount drilled. The orseed rape market has had a good week compared to previous ones with a steady rise from Monday of £7.25p to the time of writing. One more surge in price, we could see a lot of all-seed rope come to the market unless it is planned to be carried forward, subject to cash flow and storage. Barley, now that spring drilling is nearly over, it will be interesting to see how much barley has been established and what the result of this will be. We already know that there are no malting premiums going forward due to the amount of barley forecasted to be grown, and it will only increase in premium when we get an accurate figure of exactly how much is in the ground. Moving on to prices this week. Feed wheat, April, we have 153 flat price, and a flat price for May at 154. Moving on to new crop, November, 165 to 167, and May 21, 170 to 172. Milling premiums are currently 25 to 27 pounds. Oil seed rate for April is 309 to 310. For May, 310 to 311. And no carry going forward to November, at 310 to 312. Feed barley for April is 124 to 126. For May, 126 to 128. And for November new crop, 128 to 130. May 21 has limited carry at 132 to 134. And as I mentioned earlier, there are currently no malting premiums available. Thanks as ever, Kit Dickinson from Openfield. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Generally a pleasant day today. Dry until this evening with just a gentle variable breeze and highs of 18 Celsius this afternoon. Rain's likely from this evening, but that should clear by Monday breakfast and there's very little rain after that for the rest of the week. The wind stays mainly from the northeast pretty much all week, keeping temperatures lower. Moderate wind speeds for Easter Monday gusting up to 30 miles per hour, but calming down from Tuesday. Daytime highs around 8 or 9 on Monday and Tuesday, getting into double figures from Wednesday, but not much above 12 until Friday when things start to warm up a little bit again.
On Monday and Tuesday nights, we're likely to see a bit of frost. Lows around 1 or 2 Celsius, but getting a little warmer from Thursday night. Next week on the Farming Programme, we'll return to the subject that rarely goes away, sadly, fly tipping. I'm Steve Orchard. Stay safe, positive and have a good farming week.